Thank you. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> uh, today we are going to be reading uh, the entire launch of Jesus's ministry, and uh, we're not going to be focusing just on that section. But I, it's such you know a lot of times when people are giving sermons and you're like, what text should we work on and sort of thing. A lot of times pastors will window down really far and they'll even like we're gonna do a today we're studying Isaiah 12 31a you know and it just it doesn't it kind of you can lose the richness that the the text has sometimes uh, you know in the old in the olden days before the printings of the papers back when Bibles were read aloud in community off animal skins um, they would just read Bible the Bible for hours at a time because it was so special to be around these ancient scriptures. And so um, I, I, there's something right to that, you know? So even though I, we're not going to be reading and, and focusing and learning about the entire opening of Christ's uh, um, ministerial launch, uh, we're going to read it. So I, I think on some level, I want to, well, everybody, I'd like you to stand for the reading of the Bible, but also just sort of absorb it, if you could, the, the, the whole sort of genesis of Christ's mission and his launch into the world, it's, it's a phenomena. It's its own thing. It's like, a, it's like a space shuttle taking off. There's something more dramatic about the shuttle taking off than 10 days into launch, right? There's this, you know, there's something characteristically shuttle-ish about the shuttle in its launch, it's the launch reveals something deep to the shuttle-ishness of the shuttle. So let's, if we can, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make jokes. I really do believe that. So um, let's read. We're going to be reading um, Matthew 3, and we're going to start at verse 13 and read all the way through chapter 4, verse 17. So if you have your Bible, I'm the sad person with his Bible on a phone. There's something sad about that, but I, that's what I'm doing. So I'm going to be reading the Net Bible, um, but obviously feel free to, you know, version yourself. Okay, um, let's ask for a, a, a prayer for a moment and allow this ancient, beautiful, inspired, holy piece of text to sort of pass through us and do with us what it will. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we're about to read your, your words, and we're about to, to um, enter into the story that defines our Christian faith. So God, I want to invite you to um, speak through this text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus, then Jesus, here it is. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So Jesus replied to him, Let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. After Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming out of the water, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming on him, and the voice from heaven said, This is my one dear Son, in him I take great delight. Mm. Chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, 
command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, once again, it is written, you are not to put your Lord, your God, the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you throw yourself to the ground and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away from me, Satan, for it is written, You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began ministering to his needs. Now when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned, he went into Galilee. While in Galilee, he moved from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum by the sea. <clears throat> in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light, and on those who sit in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach this message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Amen. Okay, please be seated. <clears throat> so what is going on here? You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm trying to think about this text, if I was like totally not a Christian, never had read the Bible before, this feels a little confusing. First of all, it's a very old, old book. Uh, 2,000 years ago. So it's going to be, it's not going to be kind of in the written in sort of the same flow as something would be written today. But it's also, there's a lot happening. There's things being quoted and there's, what, what is this? There's, there's doves descending and all this kind of stuff. So I think it's worth, we're going to focus today just on the wilderness, just on Jesus going into this desert place and having this interaction with the devil, which is so interesting. Uh, but before we do that, I, I think it's important to give it context. Because sometimes we can make our Christian faith or Jesus about the gospel of, like, moral performance. Like, oh, you know, we, we, we want to be a good person, and let's be a good person like Jesus was in the with the devil in the desert or something like that. And we remove the desert temptation out of the context it was written in. But I'm telling you, if there's one message I want to try to get you uh, guys to understand today, it's that this wilderness message only makes sense in the surrounding texts. And outside of that, it just starts to become Jesus the moral teacher, which is really not worth our time at all. In fact, it sets us up for failure. So let's look at this context. Jesus had just returned from refuge the, la the last time that we had interacted with him in the book of Matthew. He had just returned from refuge in the nation of Egypt, of all places. This is our first time in the book of Matthew experiencing Jesus kind of arriving on the scene as an adult, okay? This is his first kind of Jesus the fullness showing up in that way. But before this, he had just returned from refuge in Egypt. 
and he sort of is assuming some sort of leadership over and above this movement that John the Baptizer, I, I like to say Baptizer because it makes him sound like not a Baptist, uh, but Jan the Baptizer, <laughs> you know, it's weird. John the, like, Southern Baptist or something. But it's John the Baptizer. Yeah, I'll just say that now. Uh, John the Baptizer is, he's, he's kind of in, leading some sort of new movement. And Jesus comes and sort of assumes leadership. And then he enters into the Jordan River. He has this experience of baptism where he passes through the water and he's led, and he's called the Son of God and he's led into the wilderness for 40 periods of testing. And in the wilderness, he's going to be quoting the scriptures and he's quoting Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Now, I remember growing up when I was at, I was a camp counselor at Spring Hill Camps growing up. And I remember there's this guy who's like, do you know what Jesus' favorite Bible verse was? And I'm like, no, I, what, I, no. He, he's like, Deuteronomy 6 through 8, it's the one he quoted the most. Well, okay, maybe, but more likely, it's because the context of what is being said here today. So let's look at this. Can we get, oh, I need to turn this on. There we go. Okay. How, in, this, does this start to sound a little familiar? Returning from refuge in Egypt, Genesis 46. A man named Yeshua, Joshua, assumes leadership of the country, of the people group, of, of, of God's people. They pass through the Jordan River in the third chapter of Joshua in order to create a new kingdom. It, earlier in the book of Exodus, God actually calls Israel his son in Exodus 4.22. And after he calls Israel his son, he's thrust into the wilderness for 40 periods of testing, Numbers 14, and Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is specifically about moving from a desert existence into a kingdom existence. So can you guys start to get a little bit of a sense of what is happening here? God is creating, well, and then the, um, let's see here, there we go. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. God is creating this kingdom again, just like he did in Joshua 3. He's creating this kingdom but what's the difference? God is reestablishing his kingdom on earth, but this time he's going to lead it himself. So that's, this is kind of the opening of the Bible. This is actually the whole essence of the Christian faith and the New Testament is this establishment of a new kingdom. And this is what Jesus was, came here to do. Repent and believe this new kingdom is being made. Remember that kingdom that we tried to make back in the day? Didn't go so well. We're making the new kingdom now. This is a new thing. But instead of trying to rely on humans and all of their failures and trying to create like, oh, you know, I want you to be in a tent. We want a temple. Okay, have a temple. You sh we, I don't want you to have a king. We want a king. Okay, we can try a king. It's just complicated and messy. But instead, he is going to come and he is going to try to lead this people group himself. So this is, uh, uh, this, God is creating this new kingdom. Now, I think what's beautiful with the wilderness temptation that's coming after this is it's going to reveal the character of this kingdom because sometimes it's easy to say God is making a kingdom and he's just you know going to create this kingdom and it's going to be centered on himself instead of us but what is the character of God what is the character of this kingdom and that is what the wilderness experience this temptation between the devil and Christ is going to reveal it's kind of beautiful in a sense you think about it these two very polar opposite forces are going to encounter each other, kind of like sparks. 
they're going to be thrust into contact, into conflict, and that conflict is going to sort of reveal the character, the in, interior, not just of, God, of Christ himself, but also of the devil himself. All this character, is, it's going to be like, and all this character is going to kind of reveal itself. So let's go through each temptation of, of it one by one. It's worth mentioning that uh, Jesus is going to be d- driven into the desert by the spirit that baptizes him, that lands on him. And in the desert, he's going to have t- been fa- fasting for 40 days. So it's sort of the devil's meeting him at his like weakest moment. It's at the place where he is at the kind of the most risk. So let's look at the first temptation here. If you're really God's son, turn these stones into bread. So the devil comes and he, he sees Jesus and he meets Jesus in this extremely weakened condition. And he says, if you're really God's son, you know, turn these stones into bread. Immediately, this is extremely telling to who Christ is and how the devil works to try to tear down God's kingdom. Because the, the most important thing, the, the devil's temptation acts as an arrow. It sort of tips the devil's hand. It acts as an arrow to show what is at the very center of what made, made Christ himself. And that is this first thing. If you're really God's son, that's it. That's the center of what made Christ him. If the devil can go- cause that identity as God's son to become distorted or collapse or whatever, the, everything else fragments apart. And the devil knows this. So if he can get, that is going to be the focus of his distortion, of him trying to get Christ to fall into sin, is going to be, if he can corrupt and twist and, you know, are, are you really God's son? We should, we should think about this a second. We should question that. If he can get Christ to sort of twist and distort this identity as being God's son, then everything else is going to fall apart. So that right there is already going to define who it is, what it is that makes Christ himself, what it is that makes him so uh, uh, different from anyone that's ever come before him, is perfect sonship, perfect identity as a child of the Most High. Now, what's interesting is this is going to be put in conflict with his current weakness, his current bodily weakness. So there's this tension that the devil is going to be leveraging where Christ is feeling famished, he's exhausted, And so in that place of bodily weakness, there's this opportunity that the devil has to kind of, you know, uh, uh, twist things. Jesus has this great response. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes to the mouth of God. Uh, there's, There's so much richness here. It's actually really difficult to preach on this text because you can talk about every little thing for like 20 minutes. But... Uh, um, man does not live on bread alone. Immediately, Jesus identifies as fully man. This is not some sort of battle of God and Satan, you know, these big, huge, you know, principalities and powers battling. This is, on some level, a, a person who is fully God and also fully man. This is us. This is our humanity is wrapped up in the outcome of this struggle right here. So one of the first things Jesus does when being tempted is admit his frailty, admit his, his humanity, his, his weakness, his famish, he's famished, he's, he's hungry, and, and he's honest about that. He's not pretending to be some sort of superhero that doesn't actually get affected by a lack of food. And I think that's really interesting. But then he says this, uh, uh, that people don't just live off food, they live off every word that comes from the mouth of God. Kind of a clever thing, because he quotes 
the words of God to say that we live off the words of God. But I think it reveals a very important part of what made Jesus who he was, which is he lived and saw the Bible as his food. He saw scripture as something that was supporting him and lifting him up because they are God's words. He's not just quoting, you know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's tied himself into his Jewish ethnicity, which sees the Old Testament as God's words, as the supporting structure, and as the, the, the stuff that he consume in the middle of life's difficulty. You see here in this moment, in the very first temptation, Jesus' commitment to Scripture as a, as a place of life and a, and, a, and a medium of relationship to the Most High. It's a place of, it's, it's a device that is going to connect Jesus to his Holy Father. It is hard to believe in God sometimes. You don't see him. It's very special that God said audibly, this is my son. He only speaks audibly twice in the whole New Testament. Does anyone know the second time? What? The transformation, transfiguration, exactly. There's only two times God audibly speaks out loud. So because there's this kind of like lack of, you know, huge talking to, to, that there needs to be this dependence upon the, the words of God that have happened in the past, and that's what the scripture is. So you can see Jesus has this attitude and this compulsion towards the Bible as a place of life, a place of relationship. Through it, through the Bible, he remains in relationship to God. And so the first temptation fails. Okay, second temptation. If you're truly God's son, have angels keep you from harm. This is, I, I think, the most interesting temptation by far, okay? Because a couple things happen. First, Jesus is taken to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. And on the top of this temple, you know, he says, throw yourself down for it's written. The devil quotes the Bible at Jesus. He quotes God's words at Jesus to try to corrupt him with the actual words of his own father. Okay, wow, that's a big deal. This is very interesting. This is complicated. It's actually really hard to preach on this because you have to sort of, uh, you know, there's these, you know in the Mission Impossible movies where they are sort of like doing this thing between these laser beams, you know? That's a little bit like preaching out of this verse right here because I'm about to say that the Bible can be used for evil and yet it is God's perfect word, okay? It's a little dicey, but we're going to do it. So, uh, uh, he is going to be, he, the devil quotes the Bible. He quotes Psalm 91. What does he use Psalm 91 to say? Okay. He basically is going to proof text and say, hey, if you're part of God's, if you're God's child, then you can just like walk across the street without looking both ways. You can throw yourself down from heights. Angels are going to catch you. You can do whatever you want. It's a terrible use of Psalm 91, but he is actually quoting the book of Psalms at Jesus. And Jesus sees the book of Psalms as God's words. And Jesus comes back at him and, and, and says God's words back. And so it's, there's this tension between the Bible as the devil's quoting and the Bible as God is quoting. So apparently, even we just spent in the previous temptation talking that Jesus can, sees the scriptures as the food and the lifeblood that he has that connects him to God. The scriptures are what keep him in relationship to the Most High. And yet, at the very next temptation, the scriptures are used by the devil to try to tear down God's kingdom. Very interesting. Very interesting. 
There's another thing happening here as well, though. What is up with the temple? Why does Jesus get taken to the top of the temple? If it's just about not hurting your foot when you fall, why doesn't the devil just take him to the top of the mountain like he does in temptation number three? Why? What's so special about falling down the temple? Uh, I don't totally know. I I looked at a couple commentaries uh, to try to figure this out. They don't have good answers either. So I thought about this a lot, and this is what I'm thinking. I don't know if this is necessarily gospel truth, but having looked at the options, this is what I think is relevant about Jesus taking, about the devil taking Jesus to the temple and having him throw himself from the temple. Judaism is very different from Christianity, okay? Judaism has only one temple. In Christianity, there's churches everywhere. You know, we have St. Paul's Cathedral in Rome. Is that really the center of Christianity? Not really. It's kind of our biggest, most famous church. But is it really the center of the Christian faith? No, it's not. Christianity is more of a decentralized, every city kind of has its own church. But in Judaism, there's only one temple, especially back then. There's not anymore. But there's only one temple. So for Christ to be taken to the top of this temple is for him to be brought to the center of Jewish life. And there are going to be lots and lots of people below this temple. So for Jesus to fall down this temple and be caught, like, fly through the air like Superman, it's very dramatic to see this. And he's going to be doing this in front of all of these fellow countrymen that he has. It's also, at the time, the temple was very corrupt. It was built partially with money by the Roman Empire. The Sadducees who were in charge of the temple were partially stooges of the Roman Empire. The high priest was appointed by Rome at this time of Christ. Very broken. This is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all split apart. It's because the Pharisees were like, that whole thing is broken. We're going to be over here about purity. And the Sadducees are trying to remain in this kind of temple worship that they had in the book of, in the Torah. Anyway, so for Jesus to sort of have this flying experience where he's falling and these angels catch him, on some level it's sort of a justice thing as well against the Sadducees that are in power. Like, you know, God is, God is with, with me. He's not with this broken kind of thing. So, if I could guess, and I, I don't know exactly, I think that Jesus is having the devil put him into tension with his identity as God's son, his relationship to his peers, his relationship to his fellow Israelites. If he can fly through the air and be caught and fly around like Superman, it is going to cause him to have all of this acclaim and glory and praise from the people group that he's a part of. Why is it that the devil both quotes the Bible and takes him to the temple in the exact same temptation? I think, just my thoughts, I think it's because uh, uh, the devil is trying to put Christ's identity as an Israelite in conflict with his identity as God's son. Very interesting. So how does Jesus respond? Don't put your God, your uh, you're not to put your, the Lord your God to the test. Again, he's going to quote Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6. And so he's going to say, no, I have this sonship. I, 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 am, I, am, I feel deep inside of myself that I'm God's son. I don't need to test God. I'm secure in this. So there's this tension where the devil's trying to encourage him to say, listen, your identity as an Israelite, are you going to claim this? Are you going to claim this identity? 
And he's saying, no, listen, I am secure as, as, in my identity as God's son. So again, he passes this test. Um, temptation number three. Abandon your faith and you'll receive the kingdoms of the earth. At this point, the devil has kind of stopped trying to twist things around. He's stopped trying to be like, hey, let's, let's question this and let's distort this. And he just straight up goes for it. He says, listen, just abandon it. I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the earth. And he brings them up into this mountaintop and he shows them all this stuff. Now, this is very interesting. I, I, uh, I, there's, a, there's a poet at the time of Christ who talked about the imperial palace in Rome. And I thought it'd be interesting to share this quote with you today. So this is what a poet says about the Roman Empire at the time of Christ. Awesome and vast is the edifice, distinguished not by a hundred columns, but by as many as could shoulder the gods and the sky if Atlas were let off. The thunder's palace is next door, gapes at it, and the gods rejoice that you are lodged in a like abode. So great extends the structure and the sweep of the far-flung hall, more expansive than that of an open plain, embracing much enclosed sky and lesser only than its master. So this is a poet named Statius, and he's talking about the, the imperial palace at, at Rome, which is the center of all the kings of the world at this point. So I'd like to think, just my thoughts, if, he, if the devil's going to show him the kingdoms of the world, what better is the imperial palace of Rome? And look how incredible this is. Imagine a carpenter's son, a carpenter's son who had never really left, you know, this little region of the world, Galilee, Nazareth, moved to Capernaum. He probably came to Jerusalem for these, uh, uh, um, once a year for the, the Passover, like he, you, you read about. But like in general, he had never seen anything like this. So this may have been a significant temptation. And there's also something kind of brutally clever about what the devil's doing because he's stopped trying to leverage parts about Jesus' heart and trying to twist them. And he's just being honest. He's like, listen, let's just stop with this whole thing. Let's just, I'm just going to give you all the kingdoms of the world, it, just crudely. And on some level, there, that is a different temptation because he's not trying to leverage bodily pain. He's not trying to leverage Jewish identity. He's doing something where he's just saying, listen, we're not even going to try to leverage anything. I'm just going to bluntly say, check out these incredible glory, glory kingdoms and palaces. You can have all this if you just worship me. So then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 again, this new kingdom Old Testament reference. And he says, you know, uh, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he passes these things. So then, what is sort of the conclusion? Let's look at all three of these temptations together. Okay, here's kind of the three temptations in sequence. Temptation number one, to distort his relationship with the Father by avoiding suffering. Number two, distort his relationship with the Father through glory from his peers. Temptation number three, abandon his relationship with the Father for glory from the world. How, what do these all have in common? Can you kind of see it a little bit here? I made it easy for you. Okay. His relationship with the Father is, again, the center of who he is. Just like that first temptation. If you're really God's son, remember that baptism you just had? Are you, if you're really God's son, his relationship with the Father is the center of what makes Jesus who he is. With that, he is complete. There's nothing else he needs. 
There's nothing else that, is, that's the most important thing in his life. He's defined by this. So if you want to understand what is the character of this new kingdom that Jesus is founding in Matthew 3 and 4, in the whole Christian faith, in the whole New Testament, what is the character of this kingdom? It's that right there. It is a kingdom defined not by any attribute, not by any facet of this world, but by a submission to the Most High God in a relationship and a, and a sonship and a daughterhood to that Most High God. That's it. So what's so great about this is that it has a correlation. If this is holiness right here, then what is sin? Well, we can go back to uh, uh, these temptations. What do they have in common regarding the antagonism that the devil used against God's, uh, Christ's relationship with God? Avoiding suffering, glory from peers, glory from the world. If the central identity of Christianity, if the central identity of the kingdom that God is founding is going to be something like a re- a holding God as our king, making that we are God's children, you are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High, anything that would take that place is at risk of unseating your identity as a Christian. Let me put this more bluntly. <clears throat> oh, I missed a slide. Okay. Um, the slide that I missed was, <clears throat> all sin is the kingdom instead of the king. When the devil says, worship me, the devil's a creation of God as well. Worship, worship the creation. Worship the kingdom. Okay? When Jesus is, is invited, look at this, when Jesus is invited to focus on his suffering and to question his identity as God's child in the midst of hardship, what is, what is happening here? He's inviting, the devil's inviting him to subvert his identity as, as being God's child to the pain and the struggle that he is going through at that time. And this happens all the time with people, all the time. I, you know, think about the person who went through a terrible breakup, and in the midst of that breakup, they make bad decisions. Why is that? It's because in the midst of hardship, it is more difficult to claim ourselves as being healthy. You know, uh, uh, rebound relationships, usually not healthy. But why do people do them? It's because in the midst of hardship and suffering, there is a temptation to question whether or not they are complete, whether or not they are truly children of the Most High. Glory from our peers. This is very interesting. C.S. Lewis is very famous for saying that oftentimes, in churches particularly, people will focus on, like, what is the greatest you know, danger of going to hell for a lot of people, and they'll focus on, like, hot sins, like drunkenness and sex and whatever. But C.S. Lewis said that the greatest temptation often are parents who live for their children, right? Why is that? It's because our peers oftentimes are the biggest temptation to assert themselves as more important in our lives than God. You know, on some level, our spouses— our best friends. These are the things that are, have the potential to come into our lives and take over God's position. And that's, you know, this, so this is the second temptation that he went through. And similarly with the world, there's this identity that, there's this temptation that we can be uh, 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 sometimes like, you know, Holland and it can, we can see celebrities or whatever on social media and things can look with all the, the social credit that people have and all the wealth, 
they can start to make our lives seem insignificant. But the truth is, is that all of the that all of this wealth and all of the social status that people often have and they're showing off and everything, it is completely secondary to what it means to be a child of the Most High. So this is, uh, there's this great quote that my wife uses sometimes, you'll be holier on accident than you ever will on purpose. And I'd like to finish with this idea, okay? If you give your heart to the king, you receive all this stuff back anyways. Think about it this way. What did the devil often, what did the devil uh, tempt Jesus to have? You should be eating, you should be ministered to by angels, and you should receive the kingdoms of the world. What happens eventually for Jesus in the scriptures? Well, at the end of our passage today, the, the angels go and carry him, minister to him, probably feed him food. So he gets those things that the devil tempted for him to get. That these are not bad things. Again, sin is worshiping the creation over the creator, the king instead of the kingdom. So the devil is using very good, right, God-made things to try to tear and distort things. But in resisting that temptation, Jesus receives food eventually. He receives angels ministering to him right here in the text eventually. Think about uh, uh, Revelation 11. What happens in Revelation 11? All the kingdoms of the world become uh, God. Uh, Jesus takes uh, authority over all the kingdoms of the world anyways. So you have this devil who's, you know, he's like, hey, I, I, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's not that the devil's uh, temptation is wrong. It's just out of sync. It's misplaced. And what is the, what is the switch around that he's doing here? Is he's putting the, uh, uh, Christ ahead of his father. In giving his life to the Lord, Jesus gets all those things anyways. In we, this, this statement, you'll be holier on accident than you ever will on purpose. If you give your life to the Lord, you get life in its, in its perfect balance. This is why I don't like oftentimes the Bible being used as a kind of a, a device for moral performance. Because we're like, you know, I should be angrier here. I should be more loving here, more sacrificial here. It's exhausting. You, can't, you cannot perfectly respond to every situation with the right behavior on an analytical level. You can't do it. It's impossible. This is what Christ came to do and change, is when your heart is given to Christ, when your heart is given to God, you organically flow with correct behavior. It's not about moral performance. And a lot of times as Christians, we ourselves can start to struggle that, boy, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. I'm kind of like, you know, I haven't been nice to people or uh, um, I have some healing that needs to happen in my life. And it can be burdensome. Like you should be acting in a certain way. But what this text is saying right here is that if you can dig deep and fall in love with God as your king, if Christ becomes a, a, uh, if Christ becomes a doorway through which you can have a relationship with the Father, then the the quality of your life is going to organically flow in the right direction. Okay? This kingdom is not a kingdom of love. This kingdom is not, well, I guess God is love. Okay, let me back up. This is not a kingdom of, like, attributes of God. This is a, this is a kingdom of God. That's a big distinction. Most heresy, most sin, are taking some aspect of God and making that the whole of who God is. Okay? Let me pick on 
what's an easy th thing to pick on here? Like, I don't know. Prosperity gospel, that's not bad. Okay, does God want everybody in the world to be not hungry? Does he want the world to be full of prosperity? Of course he does. Why wouldn't he? What's wrong with prosperity? Nothing. But what's wrong with the prosperity gospel? Is it the focus is no longer on Christ as Lord. The focus is on prosperity, as if this is the only central thing of what makes God who he is. So what's missing there? What's missing is that the relationship with Christ, the relationship with God, is at the center of the faith. This is the, this is the kingdom that we're a part of. So this is what I'd like to invite everybody to, to um, today that we, that we depart with. You will be holier on accident than you ever will on purpose. If you try to be a good person, and, and a lot of times this gets all wound up in like, you know, uh, works righteousness and all this kind of, this is not what I'm talking about, okay? It's not about like whether or not you go to go to heaven or something. This is about whether or not you are healthy, happy, complete, and full in the world, okay? In, in, the, in the life right now. If you try to manage your life, it is going to be a frustrating experience. You are going to, it's going to deposit you uh, on the side of the road frustrated. It's going to make you feel anxious. It's impossible. It's very difficult, and it's, it's exhausting. It's not worth living for in that way. But if you can give your heart to the Lord, then the natural uh, qualities of what is God in all in the right circumstances are going to organically flow. They're going to emerge themselves in the right proportion. And you are going to emerge into the kingdom as God intended it to be. For now, on this side of Christ's return, it's going to be better by far than the, than the, than the alternative. And in the kingdom to come, things will be solidified and that will just be the way that things are naturally. With, with God as our son, you know, we'll see him face to face and it'll just, it'll be a, 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 a permanent flow of, of God's character and God's peace. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, uh, thank you so much for um, this beautiful text today. How crazy is it that you um, went into the desert and um, had a debate and had a temptation with the devil? It still is kind of blows my mind and uh, that we have just the blessing of seeing that interaction. So thank you so much for your, the text, these, these words that you've given us, uh, given us today, God. Um, forgive us, Lord, of times in our life where we have tried to focus on some aspect of you because it is easier. Forgive us, Lord, of times when we focus on our identity with our peers, or proof texting the Bible, or worldliness as a way, again, that took the place of you in the center of our hearts. Lord, we desire to be sons and daughters of you. Thank you so much for, for giving us, um, for tearing that, that uh, curtain in between you and us through the death, your death on the cross, God, and uh, delivering us into right relationship with you. It is so sweet 
to be held as your child. It meets us in our deepest of places. It is the most satisfying thing that we have. You're so good and so lovely. We're so grateful to call ourselves your children. Help us to fall in love deeper with you, God. Sometimes I I think, Lord, uh, there's a temptation to say that we've made it. We're children of the Most High. It's done. But I think, you know, if we think of it, we can always fall deeper in love with you. We can discover a new facet of who you are, a new way that of which you work in the world, Lord, because that's what loving relationship is. It's endless. It's bottomless, God. You know, forgive me. At, at times, I feel I've been satisfied with too little. Create in us a desire to know the depth and richness of your goodness and your character to walk with you, God. Life is complicated. Life is difficult. Lord, we struggle. We suffer. But Lord, you are so good in the midst of this. We're so grateful to have you and to claim you, to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.